Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, we love Burger King Grilled Dogs. They're made with 100% beef, and they're 100%. Mm. They're so good, they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. Made with 100% beef. Flame grilled anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real GM Radio. This is Daniel Guru, your host, and so excited to have you with us for this week's NCAA Tournament Special Edition. We have three guests for you this week. First up is Real GM's college basketball analyst, Dan Hanner, to talk about the tournament and to break it down region by region for his picks and surprises and upsets. Then we have Real GM's Jonathan Charks to talk about the draft impact of the tournament. And then finally, we have a mascot bracket, unlike anything you've probably ever heard, because I happen to have a biologist in the family, and so we go into it in more detail than you've probably experienced. It's a lot of fun. That's the last thing on the show. But first up is Dan Hanner. He's the college basketball analyst for Real GM, frequent guest on the show, love having him on. He's my go-to analyst for college basketball, both on and off the podcast. And it was great to have him on. We talked for about 30 minutes, and we go region by region, so you can get upsets, get the sweet, his Sweet 16 picks, and then at the end we go into the Final Four, and we hit some interesting larger issues along the way. Hope you like it. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, glad to join you. So I figured what would make the most sense would be to go through region by region and just kind of talk about who you like, what games you're most interested in, and then um, also who you, most importantly, who you expect to make it out of that. Uh, let's start with the South, which has the overall number one with Florida. What intrigues you about that region? Yeah, so starting at the top of this region, I mean, uh, I obviously have strong feelings about Florida going a long way in this tournament, but, I mean, the, the amazing thing about the tournament is it doesn't take very long for any of these teams to face challenging games. I mean, Pittsburgh is a team that has had great margin of victory numbers all year. I think they could really give Florida a challenge in the second round. But I also do uh, think that that Pittsburgh-Colorado game is a game that, you know, people should be aware is, is certainly not as much of a toss-up as the 8-9 seed matchup would suggest. If you look at 
granted, Vegas has Pittsburgh as a pretty heavy favorite based on their margin of victory numbers. And both these teams are really not as good as they were earlier in the season. Colorado obviously lost Spencer Dinwiddie, and Pittsburgh lost Duran Johnson, who was a key outside shooter for them. So even though, uh, you know, I think it's an intriguing first-round game between those teams, it doesn't have quite the same spice it would have uh, earlier in the season. Continuing down, we talked a little bit before the podcast just uh, via email. I picked UCLA to be one of uh, basically my biggest upset victim in this tournament, which uh, has has sort of nothing to do with, uh, you know, disliking UCLA. I mean, it's sort of amazing to me, actually, the year Kyle Anderson has had, being just a stats teach stuffer across the board, being a huge impact player across the board, that he hasn't gotten more love nationally. I mean, we're sitting there on Selection Sunday, and everybody's talking about Helio uh, Kondasevich of St. Joseph's, who's also sort of an all-around stats teach stuffer. But he's turnover prone, he's emotional, he's not the leader that Kyle Anderson is. I think I, I almost never hear Kyle Anderson's name brought up in, in these circumstances. And maybe it is a bit of our normal, you know, West Coast bias or whatever it is. I mean, I, but I really do like this. UCLA team and some of their players, but the reason I've sort of picked out UCLA as one of the sort of more heavy possible abilities to be upset uh, early in the tournament is a few reasons. First off, you know, the Tulsa team they are playing forces some turnovers, which helps, but also, UCLA really gives up a lot of wide-open threes. Um, and, and, you know, yes, they were hot in the Pac-12 tournament, but as we saw in the last game of the regular season against Washington State, because they give up so many wide-open threes, they allow sometimes bad teams to hang with them or teams that aren't, don't have the same level of talent they do. We saw Washington State made threes left and right and sort of shocked UCLA at the end of the season. And it wouldn't be crazy to see a, a small mid-major do something similar. Uh, UCLA is lucky enough in some sense that Tulsa is not a great three-point shooting team, but they are a team that's really peaking at the end of the year. They're, they're very sophomore-led. They finally sort of hit a groove, winning 11 in a row, and, and I think they're actually underseeded as a third team. I, I don't think that's an ideal matchup for them. And, and then you have a VCU team with its pressure defense that potentially causes problems in any circumstance. So, uh, you know, that's, that's certainly starting at the top of the South, some, some of the more interesting storylines that I see. And then at the bottom of that bracket, you have one of the more interesting potential second-round matchups, which is Syracuse and Tyler Ennis against Ohio State and Aaron Kraft, which is a very interesting thing. And also, both those teams have plenty of other talent. And then the other part, big part of the bottom of that bracket is what happens with Kansas. Yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> I do wonder if Syracuse played Ohio State, if we might get a game in the 40s. I mean, both these teams have been really outstanding on defense this year, but have both had times in the year when they've really struggled to score. And, and I could see a game, a very ugly game between uh, those two teams. You know, New Mexico, obviously, I think everybody's emphasized how underseated they were. Their, their front court is tremendous. But I think it's also interesting that Stanford is not a team, I think, that will be intimidated by a strong front court. You know, they've played a bigger lineup this season. They've really, you know, been a strong team with the Dwight Powell and you know, I, I don't see Stanford as necessarily rolling over even as good as that the front court is for New Mexico. But Kansas is obviously, you know, the, the team that will be interesting, you know, to follow and watch. I'm not going to talk so much about all these first-round matches necessarily to go through the bracket, but I, I do want to mention that this Eastern Kentucky team that Kansas plays in the first round, they're going to put a scare in Kansas at some point in this game because Eastern Kentucky takes a ton of threes. That's basically how they score all their points. And Eastern Kentucky forces a ton of turnovers. And Kansas has been shaky at the point guard slot this year. So I assume at some point Eastern Kentucky is going to go on, you know, a nine-point run and just, you know, freak people out in that stadium. I think Kansas has enough talent that you know, they'll, they'll go on uh, quite a ways in this tournament. But uh, we'll have a little fun before, uh, before the first round's over. And we've seen this Kansas team be very vulnerable without Embiid. That loss to West Virginia is one that really stuck with me just in terms of the type of loss that you could see them have in the tournament if they can't have him playing. 
Yeah, absolutely. I don't think they're nearly the same defensive team uh, without him on the court. I, you know, I've, we've long talked about how the committee factors in injuries or doesn't. I mean, I, it sounded from what the committee said this year that they basically punted on Embiid's injury. But, uh, I, I mean, I think there's no question that he was, he's, a, he's a key defensive force. And if they want to win a national title, they're going to need him to be healthy in, in one of the later rounds to make that happen. Okay, so moving on in the South to the actual regional, so that'll be the Sweet 16. Who do you see making it that far and then making it all the way to the Final Four? Yeah, so I, I mean, I see Florida, VCU, Ohio State, and Kansas would be my favorite teams there. Ohio State, I think, was a little bit of an upset, but I think Thad Mata's tournament performance is a little underrated. I, the stat I found and put in my column yesterday was, in the last five tournaments, Thad Mata's team has lost by a total of 13 points in the games they've been eliminated in the tournament. He's, he certainly has wow. his team ready to play every time, and so I... I expect good things out of them. I honestly have to say that this choice between Florida and Kansas to go to the Final Four is the toughest team for me and, and, and sort of spoiling where things are going to go from this. But I think Florida is the team that is going to win it all, which is not a surprise. Everybody, if you follow college basketball, you have strong feelings about Florida. And this has more to do, as I'll talk a little bit later, about some of the weaknesses with some of the other teams. But it was a really hard decision for me, Florida versus Kansas, because Kansas is in my probably two or three other favorite teams to, to win this whole tournament. And, and, and I really think if you're entering a bracket pool, Kansas is a very good pick because if you look at the way the picks are sort of piling up on ESPN and CBS Sports and all these places where people put their picks in, Kansas is not getting nearly enough love. I think they're, they're a huge value pick uh, for NCAA pools. And if I was trying to enter a pool to win it all, I would probably pick Kansas to win the whole thing because I think you know, you're going to get the best odds with, with that sort of choice. The only scary thing with them is does Embiid have anything left to prove in college? Obviously, he'll want to play in the tournament, but if it's if it's dicey, is he going to lean towards playing or not playing? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, you're taking a, a little bit of a gamble there, but I still think, I mean, and, and you look at this, Andrew Wiggins played his best basketball at the end of the year. It seemed like early in the year he was very passive, very unwilling to take over games, and at the end of the year he realized, look, in order for the team to – to accomplish what it wants, you know, he, he needs to be that dominant. And Bill Self, if it gets into a half-court game as well, you know, Perry Ellis is extremely good in those half-court situations at, at catching the ball in the low post and being able to finish. I see Kansas as a very versatile team that can, can you know, handle full-court situations, can handle half-court situations, whether Embiid is in there or not. But clearly, you know, that, that's a big question mark, no doubt about it. Yeah, they're, they, they have the potential to be a great team either way. So we'll move on to the West, which is headlined by Arizona. What stands out to you in the early games there? You know, as, as we talked about earlier, Arizona again. So I don't like the West as a whole, as a region, in terms of it, it's been a very difficult region for me to pick a Final Four team because I think there are some issues with everybody. I, I really do like Arizona the most. But, again, you look at a possibility – of facing Oklahoma State or Gonzaga in that second game. And, and those are two teams that could each give Arizona problems for a different reason. Uh, you know, in Gonzaga's case, uh, the difficulty would be simply having, you know, big guys who can shoot the ball. And as good as the pack line defense has been, they haven't necessarily had to go out to the perimeter all the time. And, and to guard a seven-footer who can make three-pointers, that, you know, that can, that can mess that up a little bit. And Oklahoma State, obviously, with Marcus Smart, they were seriously underranked because they had this massive losing streak in the middle of the season, which is a big puzzle. Um, and Oklahoma State is clearly a team that could make a deep run with no surprise. But having said all that, I think Arizona is the best team in this region, and I, and I do like them. The other team, you know, I, I picked in the preseason two teams I, that I thought were small major teams that had a chance to really make a run this year, and Harvard and North Dakota State were the two that I had picked out in the preseason. So obviously I still like North Dakota State uh, to, to possibly pull an upset against uh, Oklahoma. The Aztecs, great defensive team, you know, they'll advance some. Yeah, and in the 
bottom half of the bracket, the one that's the most interesting to me is a potential second-round matchup between Oregon and Wisconsin. I think that Oregon is a team that isn't necessarily great against everybody, but Mosier in particular would be very interesting against Wisconsin. This is the the difficulty that I have with this bottom half of the bracket, because you really look at a number of teams that sort of had puzzling slumps in the middle of the year, and yet have are great offensive teams, yet have you know their own defensive issues at times, and, and you really wonder, you know, which of these teams are you going to see? Uh, you know, Wisconsin had a little bit of a losing streak. They even lost to Northwestern at home in January. Oregon had this massive long losing streak at the beginning of the Pac-12. But both those teams, they can score like in bunches, and and I think these are going to be some of the most fun games to watch. I, you know, who's going to win? I feel very little confidence in across the board. And on the other side there, you know, Baylor also fits in that category with the, with the big losing streak and then turning things around at the end of the year. But they play an extremely hot Nebraska team that went 11-4 and four in its uh, last 15 Big Ten games. And I'm not even convinced Baylor can get, you know, through Nebraska at that point. You know, I, I'm picking Baylor and Wisconsin to be the two teams that advance to the Sweet 16, uh, but this is really as wide open a, a, a region and, and an offensively fun region, which I haven't even talked about, Doug McDermott. If Creighton goes on a run here, he's going to play some teams that he has a chance to score some points against. Probably has to play three games to become the fourth highest score in NCAA history. You know, he could he could easily do it playing these teams. And I don't think there's any harder team, at least for me, to figure out in this entire bracket than Baylor, just because they've been such a strange team and because the way that they play fits in very strangely with the teams that they should be facing in the early rounds should they make it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I talked about this a little bit in a, in a column, too, this weekend about Creighton. You would think intuitively, if Creighton plays Baylor, that it's a bad matchup for Baylor because, you know, Creighton takes a lot of three-pointers. Baylor kind of wants to play a zone defense. They're just going to get a bunch of wide-open shots, and it's going to be bad. But the thing about zone defense is Creighton hasn't seen a lot of his own defenses here. And when, you know, Providence threw it at them in the uh, Big East Championship game, it really seemed to throw their rhythm off. And so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see Baylor having practices played it a lot for that to throw off Creighton's rhythm, even though Creighton is a good outside shooting team. So this is the joy of the tournament, that these, these teams really are coin flips that could go either way. They are. And so you already mentioned that your Sweet 16 matchup and that part would be Wisconsin and Creighton. What would it be for the top part of that bracket? Oh, sorry. It's Wisconsin and uh, Baylor. I do, I do oh, play... Wisconsin and Baylor. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, just the way Baylor has played, I do think the Big 12 has been by far the toughest conference in the nation this year. And Baylor's streak at the end of the year, not only in the conference tournament, but also prior to that, they, they've really been on a roll against very good teams. And, and Arizona and San Diego State were the two I liked uh, in the top half. And who do you have coming out of that then? Yeah, so I, I like Arizona and Wisconsin to advance, but I, I, I pick Arizona to go to the Final Four. Arizona has clearly been the class of the league. The thing and the reason I'm not quite going to put Arizona in the same national championship discussion that I put some of the other teams is because I really am a little bit worried without Brandon Ashley with the fact that they're going to need to play both Hollis, Jefferson, and Gordon in crunch time. And those guys have been shaky in their free throw shooting. I think we even saw some of that in the Pac-12 title game, if I remember. And these are your best players. You need to have them out there. But on the other hand, if the other team can just follow them and take away a possession uh, at the end of games, it really makes me nervous as the tournament progresses, you know, whether Arizona can really do everything to win, win it all. But, uh, you know, clearly the defense and the chemistry that Arizona has had this year has been phenomenal.
Well, and also Arizona has a huge benefit that all the teams on the bottom part of that, who they would conceptually play in the in the regional final, are all teams that I think they match up against relatively well. You know, I don't think Baylor, if they made it, could score enough. Creighton just isn't deep enough. And Wisconsin, just the length and the speed that Arizona has would cause them a lot of problems. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I really I – don't, I don't remember looking at the stats of this region quite as closely because it didn't seem like a big puzzle to me. But uh, I, I think Arizona is the prohibitive favorite out of this region, no doubt about it. Yeah, and I think that if San Diego – State could beat Arizona, I think they'd have a good chance, too, for very similar regions, actually. Yeah, I, actually, I, I do think San Diego State is a very intriguing matchup in that sense, because they would play a tough defensive game against Arizona, and they're exactly the type of team that could cause it to come down to the last minute where Arizona has to make some free throws uh, to win it, because it's not going to be a blowout between Arizona and San Diego State. That's going to be a close, hard-fought game that comes down to the wire, so that, that would be very intriguing if it happens. Yeah. So move on to the East, which for me is really interesting because it has so little NBA talent, but has a lot of guys who've had quality college careers, and that starts at the top with Virginia. Yeah, I think Virginia is probably one of the most underrated teams from listening to other uh, broadcasters nationally. I don't think anybody is giving this team credit yet, Uh, and and I even do it myself. I mean, it's difficult when Virginia plays Syracuse and Duke not to talk about Syracuse and Duke instead of emphasizing what it is that Virginia is doing well. And it's also difficult because Virginia plays at such a slow pace. They sort of open the door for anybody to be in a game and be competitive against them. And you look at their lineup and, you know, guys score only seven points a game or something, and you think, oh, that's not that impressive. But, you know, you're talking about a guy who's shooting 55 you know, who's never turns it over, who's seven points per game. is just an incredibly efficient rate of scoring given the style of play that this team has. And so, you know, I think Virginia is much more dangerous than people give it credit for. It's obviously Joe Harris is a great shooter leading that team, but it's guys like Mike Toby, Justin Anderson, filling in some of those secondary scoring roles. You know, I think Virginia is highly underrated. The first-round matchup between Memphis and George Washington is probably, to me, the biggest coin flip that I looked at in this entire bracket. Sort of everywhere I looked at it, you know, who forces turnovers, uh, you know, how their margin of victory numbers have looked over the year, you know, everything who's been hot late in the year, they've looked almost identical in every metric I I could look at. I I, I can't find a game that's more of a toss-up than the game between Memphis and, and GW. Continuing down the line, I already mentioned Harvard is a team that I really like to pull an upset here. This is a veteran, very skilled Ivy League team. This is as good an Ivy League team as you're you know, possibly ever going to see in your lifetime. That said, I'm not actually one of the people who thinks that the Cincinnati team is a great matchup for them. I think it depends a lot on how the game is called. Cincinnati is a very physical aggressive defensive team and if if this game is called close with a lot of whistles and fouls I can easily see Harvard winning but if the referees let this game go a little bit I think Harvard will have a really hard time scoring against that Cincinnati defense and I, I could see Cincinnati actually rolling this game pretty easily but you know in terms of small schools that have a real chance Harvard definitely fits in that category and obviously Michigan State uh, I'll talk about a little bit more when we move on to the bracket is a, is a heavy favorite as well. Yeah and then the bottom half of that bracket has a series of teams because Villanova has been decent this year, but I don't think they've been as strong. I was surprised to hear the rumors of them on the one line. And then Iowa State, I've been intrigued by their talent, and also I think Hoiberg has done an incredible job coaching them. Yeah, I, my gut, my heart has been telling me to pick Iowa State to go to the uh, Final Four, but I, I don't think they have necessarily an easy path. North Carolina Central is a team that forces a lot of turnovers in the first round, had good margin of victory numbers. That's not an easy matchup. The possibility of facing North Carolina, that's a team that. has underachieved, doesn't shoot free throws well, doesn't shoot threes well. But this is still the Tar Heels with all their talent across the board. So I don't necessarily think Iowa State has the easiest path 
to advance in this tournament. But, I mean, if you look at the way they have played and how tough the Big 12 has been this season, and, I mean, I, I don't think there's any, you know, if Fred Hoiberg doesn't get an offer to coach in the NBA, I will be beyond floored because he his ability to call plays out of timeouts and just get a score every time for Iowa State this season has been phenomenal. They, they really are a team that if you love basketball, you, you love cheering for this team. Absolutely. And I think that you could make an, an argument, though North Carolina has been insanely inconsistent this year, that both of those, both Iowa State and North Carolina, would be tough matchups for Villanova should that happen, should they make it far enough. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I said this a little bit somewhere a while ago about Michigan maybe filling this profile a bit, but I think Villanova really fits in this profile, is that I, I, they feel like Georgetown last year in the tournament, who lost to Florida Gulf Coast in the first round, in that Villanova – they have everything to be proud about. They've overachieved this season. They have Villanova, given where they were expected to be, to have finished as a two-seed and accomplished all they did, winning the Big East. It was a brilliant season that they put together. But having said all that, I don't think anybody who really looks at their roster and who they have feels that intimidation factor where Villanova's just going to roll over teams and be able to make their way to the Final Four. They, you know, it's going to be difficult. I mean, even matchups with you know St. Joe's, Connecticut, possibly in the second round, eh, those look pretty dicey for them. So... And also, the the interesting thing is that game is being played in Buffalo, should it be in the second round, and that's not particularly far from Connecticut anyway, so it's not like they're going to have this huge home court advantage like other teams in the first two rounds. No question about it. You know, I actually dislike uh, that Connecticut team a little bit, you know, based on the way they ended the season. They, they certainly, a, a lot of that was probably how poorly they played against Louisville a couple of times towards the, the, the final stretch, but... I, I do sort of get the feeling that Connecticut may have, you know, been one of those senior or, you know, upperclassmen-led teams that peaked a little bit early in the season. Shabazz Napier won a ton of games for them early, but it feels like they've sort of more limped to the stretch, uh, you know, to the finish line than are likely to make a run in the tournament. But on the other hand, you know, as, a, as a, I think I've said before, having that experience, sometimes when you get back to the tournament and the bright lights are on and the pressure is on, having a guard like Shabazz Napier who's been there, under pressure situations before, he's going to thrive in that situation better than a young team. So, you know, it's quite possible for Connecticut to, to, to change that trend. Yeah, that's one of the matchups, if it happens on Saturday, that I'm most looking forward to. But let's move on to the potential Sweet 16 and the regional champion there. Yeah, so, you know, I like Virginia and Michigan State to make it to the Sweet 16. I like Iowa State and Villanova to advance, although, as, as we've already talked about, I, I think Villanova's a little bit of a shaky choice there. Other than the Kansas-Florida game, the hardest game for me to call, probably this entire bracket, was this Virginia-Michigan State game. And I, I think I'm going out on quite a bit of a limb here by picking Virginia to advance. And the reason that I have not totally endorsed the Michigan State pick is I have not seen Keith Appling at 100% late in the season. And Michigan State has looked good in some of these games where they've gotten sort of a big lead and been able to coast here in the Big Ten tournament, but Appling is really the key to that, the, the Spartans whenever they get in a close game. He's been the closer. He's been the guy you feed the ball, and he is going to score, get to the free throw line every time in, in crunch time. And, and with him you know, having a wrist injury and not being 100%, I just have less confidence in the Spartans. Yes, he's playing, but I don't think he's 100%. And I think I think a Virginia team is certainly that's put up good numbers this year and been underrated nationally uh, has a good chance to beat them. And then, how would you see the Villanova Iowa State game turning out? Yeah, so there again, I, you know, I like the Cyclones to advance, and and I like Virginia to make the Final Four, which. Um, you know, not to spoil anything of my final regions. The funny thing about my final four when I looked at it is I, I put my bracket together. You know, I picked it before looking at a ton of stats, and then I went back and, you know, tweaked a couple of things. But my final four bracket, which includes Florida, Arizona, Virginia, and a team to be announced, is exactly the top four in the Pomeroy rankings right now, which when I saw that, I sort of, you know, slapped myself in the head and said, 
well, I don't want to pick something that so obviously, you know, goes along with just the stats because that's too obvious. But, you know, the stats actually fit with how I feel about the season from having watched it. Virginia has played tremendous basketball this year, and I think we should acknowledge that to some degree. And so I think that leads in pretty well into the final region, which also contains three of the final four teams last year, which I find fascinating. Yeah, I mean, this region... The storylines here, this is going to be the most fascinating region to watch. I mean, you know, let's start out with, uh, you know, the Kentucky-Kansas State game in the first round. I don't think we want to underestimate what Bruce Weber has done at Kansas State this year. Kansas State had zero top 100 athletes on their team. You should compare that all the McDonald's All-Americans, all the future NBA pros on Kentucky versus a Kansas State team with zero top 100 recruits. And both those teams ended up with basically the same seeding in the NCAA tournament. It, it says a lot about what Weber has been able to do defensively and getting that team to build together and also finding sort of a little bit of a hidden gem in Marcus Foster, uh, who's gotten them a long way. So, you know, that's an intriguing you know, matchup to start things off. But then you, you have potentially Kentucky versus Wichita State, you know, in the second round, which I think everybody has been drooling over the possibility of just because, I mean, look, it, however poorly Kentucky has played at various times this year, they still have all the talent in the world that if they won this whole thing, none of us would be shocked. I mean, they, they have that much talent. And so to put an undefeated, you know, sort of veteran mid-major team, the, the best that there will ever be of that type against the best that there will ever be in terms of freshman, talented, future NBA pros collected on a roster. It's such a contrast in styles. It's such a contrast in what the tournament is about. This could be one of the highest-rated weekend games the NCAA tournament ever sees on the first weekend. Yeah, and, and also the, the juxtaposition of uh, an underperforming on the aggregate. Obviously, they've had some good games. Kentucky team versus Wichita State, that it seems like they're squeezing every single thing they can, but also the, the idea of a tournament pedigree that people say, oh, Kentucky and all that, but their players haven't done it, but Wichita State's have. Yeah, no, and that's a brilliant point. <laughs> I think it's so true. They, they've been to the Final Four before. I mean, we've made a little bit of a deal of the fact that, you know, maybe Wichita State isn't as good defensively because they don't have Carl Hall, who's on last year's run, but all those other players are back, and a lot of those players are playing much better basketball than they were last season. So the, the experience will help them a lot. The, the other thing you were mentioning to me before we uh, got on the podcast is, one of the other issues is kind of a debate coming into the tournament is always whether should they play these games so late on Sunday heading up into the selection show and, you know, where that affects seeding. And, and I think one of the teams that, that I really worry about where it affects seeding is, is a team like Kentucky. You know, they talked about the NCAA was working on one contingency. Well, if Kentucky had beaten Florida in that final game, which, which ended, you know, less than a half hour before selection Sunday happened, would Kentucky have gotten a big boost from beating basically the top overall team? How, how high would they have gone in the bracket? Would the tournament committee have even been able to factor that in to what was going on? I, you know, I, I didn't hear a lot of talk about that. And, and that seems like it, it sort of devalues the, the, the SEC title game when something like that happens. But, uh, you know, obviously we all want to be able to watch games up until the exact moment when the bracket is announced. So I don't yeah. think it's going to change anytime soon. Well, what I was thinking on that note is that I would like to see some of the smaller conferences take over the Sunday spots, the conferences that their winner will get a 16, 15, 14 seed, you know, in those kind of situations, as opposed to the ones that really swing the top lines. And that would give them some nice exposure because, you know, people would want to be watching games then instead of having them earlier in the week, shift at least a couple of them to later in the week and make sure that all the major conference ones are done by Saturday at the latest. Yeah, that, that's actually a brilliant uh, idea. I really like that. I haven't uh, heard that before, but I, I could definitely endorse that. I'm actually someone who remembers back in the day, there were some years back when I remember watching this in the 90s, that ESPN actually played a game after the tournament bracket was announced. One of the small conference tournaments, they knew it was going to be somebody who was seated really low, 
they did not play that game until after the bracket was announced, and it was just said whoever won that tournament would get this particular slot. That was pretty crazy back in the day, and the reason they abandoned that is because there was one year where it ended up being like the top seed versus the eighth seed in that small conference tournament playing each other, and it was clear that those two shouldn't be seeded the same depending on who won, and so that sort of ruined the bracketing principles. But uh, the, the idea of playing a smaller conference tournament towards the end has definitely been something that people have tried out in the past. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things we haven't talked about yet are the first four games. I'm very intrigued by the NC State Xavier game with the winner of that facing St. Louis. Yeah, I mean, St. Louis has absolutely fallen apart down the stretch. This is this is a great defensive team, but they have not looked good in recent games. I think whoever wins between NC State and Xavier has a very good chance to knock them off. And the same thing with the Iowa-Tennessee game. UMass has looked very beatable down the stretch, which is too bad because this is a very fun UMass team. Chaz Williams is one of the most electric point guards in the country. Um, I, I'm sort of personally holding out hope that Iowa beats Tennessee so that Iowa and Massachusetts uh, match up with one another because Iowa likes to run and seeing Chaz Williams in a game, you know, it's like 2.6 seconds and he has gone from end to end in, you know, getting a layup. I mean, so, so seeing an Iowa-Massachusetts matchup would be a dream matchup out of that, but I think Tennessee realistically might uh, be too strong there. But both those teams, whoever, I think VCU set the standard coming out of the first four a few years ago, but I, I don't think it would be a stretch at all to say that whoever wins those first four games might be a favored uh, in the next round. And in terms of the St. Louis versus NC State Xavier winner, it feels to me like whoever wins that is just cannon fodder for Louisville. Yeah, I mean, Louisville is, they've really, really been crushing teams lately. You know, people talk about the storyline of Patino facing his former uh, assistant at Manhattan, but I mean, the way Louisville is playing right now, it's hard to imagine them facing any pressure at all until really the Sweet 16. And then the bottom half of that bracket has a Michigan team that I'm very intrigued by, and, of course, the headliners of Duke, which that whole bracket is just fascinating. I, as a Pac-12 guy, Jahi Carson's a very interesting player, but they're going to have to fight to get past Texas, too. Yeah, so, I mean, start with the Texas-Arizona State game. This is, other than the George-Washington-Memphis game, this is a game that I think is the biggest coin flip uh, in total. You look at the numbers. Both these teams struggle a little bit at the end of the season. Both these teams have some nice wins, some good things going for them. I, I, I do think G.E. Carson is, is the difference here. He's, he's going to be the best player on the floor, and I would expect him to advance. And that, again, I mean, as you point out, an Arizona State versus Michigan game, a Michigan versus Duke game, these are all teams that are very skilled offensively, are not afraid to run, who don't always play great defense. And so much as we were talking about a little bit uh, with the Wisconsin, Creighton, you know, that range, these teams down here could be some of the more entertaining games in the tournament. I do happen to like Duke to come out of this section uh, a little bit more, but when you have offensive teams that can score and no defense, these games could really go any, any direction. The other possibility that I'm really interested in there is the possibility of Glenn Robinson defending Jabari Parker, because I've always been a fan of Glenn. I think that he has a really interesting defensive profile, and if he can shut down Parker, that feeds a narrative. I mean, Duke still could win that game because they have Hood and they have a lot of talent, but that would Michigan-Duke would be, beyond the pedigree of the two teams, would be just an interesting game. Right. Matchup-wise, it's very fascinating because neither team really has that low post presence that the other team can't match up with. I mean, Jordan Morgan has done, you know, some things, you know, some nice things defensively, maybe playing a center spot, but you're basically going to be talking about two teams who don't have a traditional center that they're throwing the ball to and do whatever. The strength is all at the the power forward, the wing, and the guard spots, and some of us like slow half-court basketball throwing the ball to Joel Embiid, but but the truth is I think the 
most of us like seeing, you know, dynamic wing players who can get down the floor, and, and Parker can do that as well as anybody. And if anybody's going to jump up and block a Jabari Parker shot, it, it, Glenn Robinson certainly fits that profile. So we'll move on to the Sweet 16, the regional final there. Uh, I think you've already hinted at some of the teams, but do you want to walk through it? Yeah, so I mean, I like Kentucky, Louisville, uh, Duke, and Michigan to advance. Although if it was Wichita State instead of uh, Kentucky, I, I would not be shocked. I just, I'm giving a little credit to the preseason rankings, which still have predictive power at this point in the season, because teams that have sort of under or overachieved, you know, I, I think a lot of times the tournament could be a chance to change that. So I like Kentucky to, to make the Sweet 16, but I, I like Louisville and Duke to make it to the uh, Elite Eight. And I like Louisville as the Final Four team. They obviously didn't play the toughest schedule in the world, which is why they were a four seed, but there's nothing about how Louisville has, that has been playing that would suggest that they're in danger of losing early in this tournament. And Louisville's in that situation where I think they, as much as they were hurt by their seeding, I think their draw actually benefited them because I don't see anyone there that scares me in terms of what they do well and what they do poorly. And I think that they have a, an interesting group to match up against Duke should that be the matchup. I honestly think the Kentucky matchup would be the more scary one just because I, I still wonder a little bit about guarding, you know, uh, Julius Randle uh, with with uh, Louisville's front line. I think the team that scares them the most is a team that has a true throw-it-in-the-post player uh, to attack them. And I don't, I don't think Wichita State necessarily has that as their strength either. And as you said, Duke, that's certainly not their biggest strength. So the team might be still missing Gorgi Jang, not having a true strong block defender, physical center, but uh, none of the teams here can really expose that weakness for Louisville. And that's to me is the interesting thing. While I agree I agree with you pretty firmly that the teams at the top are better, I don't see when we're, now that we're moving on to the to the final four, I don't see any team as a standout like, wow, this team is really unbeatable which I think will make for a really interesting tournament top to bottom. Yeah, I mean <laughs> When, when you look back at it, I, I certainly – I'm a little more concerned about San Diego State's offense, and I, I obviously think UCLA as a potential upset, although I don't, I don't hate UCLA at all. But, you know, we're talking teams all the way seated down to fourth, you know, maybe 14 teams that, that if they won the national championship – it would not be a shock at all if that happened. And, and you look at the, the, the systems that are out there, uh, Nate Silver for ESPN, Ken Pomeroy, you know, choosing what they think the odds are. And the team they think is going to win it all is really talking, you know, maybe a 15 to 18 percent chance of winning the whole thing. I mean, this is absolutely wide open. And, and I think that's really, you know, as I talked about a little bit earlier, that is the key to winning a bracket pool if you, you know, don't have thousands of people in it. You actually have better odds by picking somebody a little, you know, off the, the page who, who maybe you're getting a better value in your bracket pool picks uh, by choosing. A team like Kansas or Arizona who very well could win the whole thing but maybe you know, doesn't have quite know who your opponents are in your bracket pool. If you live in the Midwest, they're going to pick a lot of Big Ten teams, maybe shy away from Big Ten teams. If you live in the, the West Coast and everybody's picking Arizona, maybe shy away from Arizona. Moving on to the final four selections, the four teams I have picked, uh, Florida, Arizona, Virginia, and Louisville, these are all four elite defensive teams. They're all very capable uh, of shutting down a team and stopping them from scoring. Um, the difference there has had some issues um, with scoring. They struggled a little bit at Oregon in the game late in the season. Virginia at times has had time, trouble with scoring. I think Florida and Louisville are the two more balanced teams in that regard. And, and I'd really do view a Florida-Louisville game as a toss-up, but Florida has been doing this for quite a bit longer. I mean, even their two losses this season early in the year to Wisconsin and to Connecticut were very, very close. It's really hard to pick against this Florida team. But, but as I said, while I think Florida is the favorite, in my opinion, that doesn't mean they're the team that you should be picking in your bracket pool. 
Yeah, and it's also interesting when you look at the coaching pedigree of that Final Four. You have a lot of quality coaches in that group. Right, and I do think that would also be another factor to, you know, not that Tony Bennett uh, doesn't know what he's doing and hasn't had done that, but he hasn't been to the Final Four before. Sean Miller, he did have some success at Xavier, but he hasn't really, you know, had one of these really successful runs at Arizona where they go to a national championship. So that also sort of leads to Billy Donovan and Rick Pitino, who have, they know what it's like to take their team to the Final Four to be under that, that spotlight and, and how to win in those games. And as somebody whose team got beat by Billy Donovan two years in a row in the Final Four, I fully understand how he can do when he has the time to prepare for a good team. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think, you know, it's sort of funny. I mean, we've talked many times. I think Donovan is a coach who, who people have not given full respect to because he's had a sort of a, an, an odd career. But, you know, he started out being a great recruiter, and it really worked out that when he, you know, found a group of sort of veteran guys who weren't necessarily all McDonald's All-Americans, but really who worked well together as a team. Joking Noah is probably the best sort of team player anybody could ever have on their team, but, but that was a team full of those players. But he really does have that sort of veteran team today. Somebody like Patrick Young is just sort of one of those amazing, you know, here's a guy who is as strong and as physically imposing as anybody in – in college basketball, but because he's you know not necessarily skilled an offensive player because he's not a natural scorer, he hasn't been able to go to the NBA. But what he has been able to become is a fourth-year senior center who nobody in college basketball has somebody as strong and as physical defensively as him, and 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 that's rare. And and when you can bring a, a veteran team together like that, uh, expecting them to do great things is not out of the question. Would it then follow that Patrick Young is your pick probably for the most likely, most outstanding player of the tournament based on Florida winning? Oh, not at all. He's more of a defensive player. I mean, I, Scotty Wilbekin and, and Michael Frazier, I, I, would put, I would put Florida in the following category. Their front court defensively has been doing this for two years, as, as good a defensive front court as possible. But it really is the guard play of, of Wilbekin and, and Frazier knocking down threes that is going to allow them to get to that next level. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, Frazier knock down a bunch of threes and get an outstanding player award in the final four. Makes a lot of sense. Are there any other topics that you'd like to go through in terms of your thoughts on the tournament? No, I, I really uh, I think that pretty much wraps it up uh, running through uh, our back bracket picks here. Uh, but, you know, if you, if you check out Real GM, I had a, a few stats on the hot teams and how teams seeded 1-13 to 13 in the tournament have done against teams seeded 1-13 to 13 in the tournament. So, uh, you know, we got plenty more for you to read up on if you prefer the written word to the podcast. So uh, good stuff in all areas. Tom, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks. Thanks again to Dan for taking the time to come on. You can read him at Real GM. He has a couple excellent pieces up going about the tournament. And you can also follow him on Twitter, at Dan Hanner. That's D-A-N-H-A-N-N-E-R. Next up is Real GM's Jonathan Charks. We talk mostly about the potential draft impacts, but we get into the broader tournament as well and into his picks of what's going to happen in the tournament. Our conversation runs about 30 minutes, and I really enjoyed having him on. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, man, no problem. So it's always interesting with the tournament because the best teams and the best draft prospects don't always align. And we have a few examples of that, Virginia and Villanova and other teams. So what teams are you most interested in watching from a draft perspective? Well, I mean, from a draft perspective, I guess. I think, you know, the teams that everyone's covered all season, you know, Kentucky, Kansas. I guess it's more like, for me, the guys who can make the biggest jump are the guys in the smaller teams who haven't played anybody all season. And it's like, this is like their big chance. Two years ago when uh, Kyle O'Quinn beat Missouri, that made him an NBA player, basically. Without that game, he's probably playing in the E-League or Europe or something. 
are there any guys in this in this draft that you think are ready to bust out like that at smaller schools? I'm not sure. I'm, that's why I'm, I want to see, I think, for uh, UL Lafayette, Alfred Payton. I think Creighton is a, cha- is a beatable team because they have no uh, rim protection. So if he could play well against them. And the other team, I think I want to see more of is uh, Langston Hall at Mercer. He's a 6'4 point guard, and he was the uh, A-Sun player of the year. So let's see what he can do against a good team like Duke. And those are two two good examples of what you were talking about in terms of that they don't have high profiles. And the other ones for me that are always interesting are the guys who came in with high profiles and then have kind of fallen off. So you could say the Memphis, basically the entire Memphis team fits in that boat, you know, Joe, Joe Jackson and a whole slew of other guys. Because you, you, sometimes you see those talented players just come out of the woodwork and show that they're actually good. Yeah, Memphis is an interesting team because they have all the pieces to make a run. And Virginia is not like the toughest one seed. Of all the ones, it's the least toughest they could have gotten. But they've been so inconsistent all season. And I just know about Josh Pastner, really. He's been there for, what, six, seven years now? And he never seems to get his guys over the hump. And he has the pieces every year, usually. Have you watched much of San Diego State this year? I have. I've watched, I watched some of their games. I'm a big fan of them. Are they more a team that's well-coached and good players, or do you think they have any potential NBA guys? I think they have one, is Winston Shepard. He's probably a year away because he can't shoot, but he's 6'8", and he runs points for them. He's really athletic. The whole team is just really athletic. They're a very one-dimensional team. They play great defense, and they can't shoot. They try to go defense to offense. They're a team that can make go really early or go really far, depending on the matchups, because they're a very one-dimensional team. Another more one-dimensional team that I'm very interested in, both from the tournament perspective and from the draft perspective, is Wisconsin. Because they have Decker, who's a really interesting talent just because of his shooting and everything else, but I don't know that they have the defensive firepower to make it a ton of the way, but maybe that's just me. No, that's exactly the problem with them. This is like, of all of O'Ryan's teams, this is the most offensive-minded team, which kind of gives them a much higher like range of outcomes than a defensive-minded team. And yeah, Sam Becker's cool because he's a white who dunks on people, which I'm always a fan of. But the guy for me is Frank Kaminsky. He was killing Adrian Payne in the Big Ten Championship. Seven foot one, stroking threes, posting up, putting the ball on the floor. He's an NBA player. He's not getting much publicity, but a seven foot guy in the back is a player in the NBA for sure. And they're going to need that against Oregon, presumably, assuming Oregon wins, because their interior guys haven't been particularly strong this year, but they have a lot of perimeter talent. And they got a guy that you were talking about, like guys had a big profile for a long time and just fallen off, and Mike Moser. And if he had gone pro, I think, two years ago, he had a first-round pick for sure. He went back to school, got hurt, and now he's off the radar completely. But he's a really good player in his own right. I'm a very in tune with him because he originally started at UCLA, which is my alma mater, and he's a phenomenal athletic talent. I always wished he could get a more reliable jump shot. But he's the type of guy who, if, they, if he can shut down Decker – or if they decide to put him on there, that could really help his stock again. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's probably going to be more of a four in the NBA than a three, but if he can prove he can lock down Becker, yes, that would definitely help. That, I think, is the thing. It's not so much like how these guys do with these individual matchups within the game themselves. That's really what can tell you a lot. For me, over the weekend, I was watching a Duke NC State, and the way Rodney Hood played D on TJ Warren, that really moved the hood up for me a bit, seeing his ability to play both in the ball like that. 
I feel exactly the same way because Hood was a guy who I was intrigued by offensively, but I could never really place him defensively. But he showed both, I think he showed good skill and good effort against Warren. And that's always encouraging because at the NBA level, you're going to need to do that. Maybe not every night, but a lot of nights, unless you're a dominant offensive player, which I don't think he'll be in the NBA. Yeah, the biggest thing to me, yeah, you have to be able to defend the position or defend, even better defend multiple positions. And Hood at 6 can probably play the 2 and 3, which gives him a lot of versatility on a team. Speaking of versatility, the team that I'm most intrigued by, considering the way that they played the last couple days, is Baylor. Because they're incredibly inconsistent. You know, you're you're probably closer to them than I am. But they're one of those teams that if they can roll it, they can do a lot of things. And potentially a second-round matchup against Creighton and McDermott would be very interesting. Yeah, Baylor is such a – I live like an hour from Baylor, so I see them all the time. And what's, what's weird about them, in the last five years, they've maybe lead eight twice, maybe an NIT finalist twice. And all those four teams had about equal talent level. It's just Scott Drew's coaching is very hit or miss, and these teams have huge swings. Like, Baylor should have been out of tournament at one point this season. They were 2 in the conference, and they won, like, nine of the last ten games. So, yeah, that's team that can go really far, I think, actually. Or they can lose in the first round of Nebraska. Wouldn't surprise me either way. Do you expect them, if they make it to Creighton, to zone them up, or do you expect them to play them more straight up? I mean, Baylor's pretty much a zone team now. They'll zone up Creighton, and they'll shut on McDermott and make somebody else beat them, which is what uh, Providence did in that Big East final. Yeah, and I was thinking, was looking at the bracket in the East, and that's interesting because we've talked about how some teams don't have great NBA prospects. It's very weird that Memphis, who's the eight, and Michigan State, who's the four, probably have the best aggregate NBA profile because Villanova, Virginia, teams like that just aren't super strong in terms of draft prospects. Yeah, and I would add UNC in there. I mean, UNC's got a ton of talent, but where do they get together? I don't know. I'm actually big on Michigan State. I just call them for real GM turning in today. I got them winning the whole thing. Wow. And they're a really well-coached team, and they have talent, too. I mean, that's always a fun thing for me is when you have a team that has plenty of talent, and Adrian Payne is remarkable, and Appling, and Gary Harris, who Gary Harris is another guy who, while he's had a good college career, he could really boost his stock in the tournament. Yeah, he could. I mean, I think there's been a study, like, the Sweet 16 and the Final Four, that that moves you up, like, five or ten spots in the draft pretty much every year because teams with other guys much more closely at that point. With the North Carolina guys, do you have a sense of who really could boost their stock? I keep on feeling, I've been a fan of James McAdoo for years. I keep on feeling like he's going to do it, but it's going to be hard against a team like Iowa State or even if they have to they have to make it past Providence in the first round. Yeah, I think that's going to be one of the most intriguing games of the first round is North Carolina Providence because both those teams have some pretty good players. And I would have ridden probably both those teams in a bracket pretty far, but yeah, they got a lot of big men too. Like North Carolina's got three big men who can play. Providence is two or three also. They've got uh, Tobias Harris' younger brother on Providence. He's not bad. Tyler Harris. And the guy I think for UNC would be Marcus Page because he's the whole team really. Yeah, Marcus Page has, and and in terms of the draft, he has a chance to really raise his profile from being kind of on the fringes to really being somebody who gets talked about. Yeah, him versus Bryce Cotton. Cotton's a guy who's kind of a fringe undrafted guy. If he can make a run, be problems in Iowa State, all of a sudden he's a second-round draft pick problem. Wichita State, they got an unbelievably tough bracket in terms of both, if you're going to talk professional talent, but also just talent and everything. Looking at it now, where do you expect them to make it? I've got them losing to Louisville because Louisville was playing as good as anyone in the country. I was at uh, SMU Louisville a few weeks ago, and Russ Smith just took over. He had like seven threes off the dribble. 
And when he's hitting those shots, you can't guard Louisville. So they're telling me, I have them in the Final Four. Wichita State, they've got to look at it one game at a time as the old cliche goes because who knows what happens in the other part of their bracket. It's really three fourteen tournaments for each team. So you play the first round, then who knows? Someone can lose, get knocked out in the bracket, who knows? And everybody's already talking about Kentucky-Wichita State, but I think Kentucky's going to have a really hard time with Kansas State because they're a pretty dangerous team in this kind of format. Oh, yeah. I mean, Kansas State is a big 12. I've seen them a lot this year. They've got the athletes to bang with Kentucky. They don't have a ton of one-on-one players, but I would take Marcus Foster over either one of the Harrison twins. I think he could have a really big game. This game. He, could talk, he could beat Kentucky by himself with like a 30-point game. I think Kentucky will win. That would be a really good game. And Kentucky's going to have to get enough rim protection. They certainly have the horses to do it, but they're going to need Collie Stein and Dakari Johnson to play well because otherwise it feels like K-State could just could just run wild and go on a big run. And Kentucky, while they have a, a ton of talent, I don't see them as a huge coming-from-behind team against a quality opponent. No, and I think most of their talent is up front with uh, Randall Young and Collie Stein. I think the Harrison Twins are pretty overrated a bit in terms of recruiting. And college basketball is a guard game. So if you've got the better big man, I have the better guards, I like my chances. And that makes it interesting for a team like Louisville because they have Russ, who's obviously incredibly talented, but then they also have Harrell at power forward, who's just a beast. Yeah, I mean, Montrez isn't the most skilled player in the world, but man, in person, for as big as he is, he just flies around the court. I think the first play in SMU, he like blocked the shot in the stands. It was like, oh my God. It'd be really fun to see him face Randall because they each have that rep and Randall's stock is much higher right now, but just to see what would happen if you put the two of them on the same floor. I would guess one of them fouls out pretty quickly. It'd be fun to watch, but that's what I hate about these tournaments sometimes is the refs and their whistle. I remember when it was like Hibbert Odin in the final four a while back and they both got in foul trouble really quickly. That's not worried about with a matchup like that. That Hibbert Odin game I actually attended in person. I was there because my school was playing in the other side of that Final Four. Oh, nice. Hey, UCLA, man, I'm big on them, too. I love what they've been doing this season. They're really inconsistent. But the problem with them is that all of their perimeter scorers are very talented, but they have these on games and off games, and the Ware twins are, I don't know. I don't i don't even want to know what to think of them. But at the same time, they're a team that if they get confidence and they can go on a run, I mean, they just had one of the best wins that anybody's had in a while over that Arizona team that was just rolling. Yeah, that was a great so, game, man. That was freaking high-level basketball. It really was, and Kyle Anderson's a guy who is a matchup problem for a lot of teams because he's truly, in the NBA, he's more of a point forward, and in college that works even better because teams just have trouble handling him because most guys who would defend him based on size aren't used to defending a ball handler. Yeah, so he's really he got does his things a little differently. Because, like, last oh, yeah. he can shoot. Now he can start top of smaller players. We're taking down and shoot that 20-footer pretty consistently. The guys that are going to be the barometer for how well UCLA does in the tournament are going to be Jordan Adams and Levine. Because they're the type of guys that can shoot this team into, let's say, the lead eight or shoot them out of the first round. That's dangerous in the tournament, but at the same time, they're coming in hot, and it's not like they're having too long off, so they're not going to cool down in that sort of stretch. And one thing else I noticed in the Arizona game, because with Anderson playing this point, they have such big guards, like Norman Powell and Adams. They're both 6'4", 200-plus. So, like, they just kept posting up Arizona's guards. The guard, they had no chance of guarding them, really, Johnson and McConnell. They just weren't big enough. And that's going to really be a big advantage in a tournament game, because any six-foot guard, who's going to guard in UCLA, really? 
Yeah, especially Levine is bigger and stronger, I think, than some people think, but that's also why I don't see him as a natural one. But when you don't have to have him handle the ball all the time, like UCLA doesn't, then he's a much more dangerous player. How are you on Levine, by the way? I know he's got a very wide range of people in terms of I think that he was overrated early on by people who compared him to Russell Westbrook. I think I was somebody who I was around Russell Westbrook. We were in college at the same time, and I watched him his freshman year, that team that made the Final Four. I said he was the best pro on that team, and he never, he barely played. So he, he was a ridiculous athlete, and you could tell that he was figuring it out. Levine isn't that level of ridiculous, and he doesn't have the handle, but He's big enough, and I think he's strong enough to primarily play the two in the NBA. And so if you think about him in that context, then I think he's a really interesting player as kind of a two-slash-combo guard. And I actually, so I have him higher than some people. I have him higher than Gary Harris. I just don't see Harris being transcendent in anything. Levine, also, the other thing that I really like about him is that he's a very dangerous player in transition, and when he gets coached up, he'll get even better there. Oh, man, in transition, Levine is like, I would pay money to watch that guy play. Those windmills he can do. I remember he had a game against Arizona State, and he had like 15 points in 10 minutes. And it was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> well, this guy gets going. And, yeah, I agree, because, like, with Harris, I don't think Harris is much of a playmaker as Levine can be. Levine can kind of get guys, get guys shot sometimes, too. Yeah, and the other thing that I like to think about when you're talking about those kind of mid mid first round prospects is what is their ceiling? And I think that with his athleticism and with the way that he could get him improved in terms of his jump shot, Levine's ceiling is much higher than Harris. And while obviously another factor is how likely they are to get there, I would be very intrigued if I were a team that all the top guys were gone, because obviously he's below all those guys, to say, okay, at the worst, as long as you have faith in your coaching staff, he could be an unbelievable sixth man and be the guy who kickstarts the second unit and who can score and who can get up and down the floor. And those guys have a lot of value. And we have a lack of depth at the two-guard position in the NBA now. There are some guys coming in now that I like, but that's a generally weak position. So I think that helps both Harris and Levine, but I would say more Levine. Do you think Levine will go pro at the end of the season? Yes. I think that he, he'll go. I think that Kyle Anderson will go. The fascinating question that I don't know if the players themselves are going to think about is whether the NBA and the PA will have it together enough to really have an age limit be a consideration. Because if agents and and the young guys think that there's a chance that the age limit's going to get pushed up for next year, some of those guys would be wise to stay just because that class is going to be an abomination if the age limit gets changed that quick. I really doubt it will because the players will – I think the players will be willing to trade it up, but they'll want something back for it. They won't just give it away for nothing. So it would have to be in an actual CBA negotiation, I think. And they won't just give it away. Well, that's a good idea. Let's just do it. They want some money for it. And the other factor in that is that they know now, because particularly because of what Adam Silver said at Sloan, is that they know that's what the commissioner and the owners want. So if you know that, then you're gonna you're gonna leverage that and you're gonna give it away. And as you said, I don't know that there are enough carrots for the owners to give the players at this stage when they're not renegotiating the whole thing. So maybe it'll be another couple of years. Yeah, that's what I would guess because you know the owners are gonna come on everything in 2017. The so players that have some chips in reserve to keep some of their money. Another second-round matchup that I'm really intrigued by is the potential of Arizona State against Michigan, mostly to see how they use Stauskas against maybe G. Carson or however they handle that. But those are two teams that I enjoy watching a lot. Hey, man, don't cut on my Longhorns. They could beat Arizona State in the first round. Absolutely. Absolutely they could. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that that's one of my most intriguing games in the first round is that Texas-Arizona game. Yeah, I think just to see uh, Baczynski versus Cameron Ridley, the interesting matchup of styles, and then Jaheed Carter versus Isaiah Taylor. Both those are interesting matchups for different reasons. You think he's an NBA player, Baczynski? Uh, I haven't seen enough of him to be really confident in him as an NBA player, but I do think that he's intriguing from a talent perspective. Yeah, I mean, he's tall. I mean, I figure, like, if he's going to be a third center, he's seven foot one, seven foot two, and he's not athletic, and he's not unskilled. I feel like the level is really low. I mean, he better than Sarge James for the Mavs, probably, so... I just looked it up. He shot 70% from the line this year, which isn't horrendous. I mean, obviously, you'd like a guy to be better, but that's not bad. So if you're looking at a guy, he doesn't take anything away in that standpoint because that's something that can hurt second and third big men is just not being able to put down free throws. Yeah, I mean, that's a big thing for me with big men shooting 70%, because that tells you they can I be picking pop players and only the NBA point guards eventually. It was yeah. a possibility, at least, with them spreading the floor. And even though he's already talked about a lot, a guy that I think could really raise his stock, not raise his stock, but bolden it and get it get it really strong is Jabari Parker. But I'm already looking forward to the possibility of that Duke-Michigan game in the third round. I mean, yeah, I don't know how much higher Jabari stock could be. I mean, it would be a top five pick, right? So I don't think go too much higher. Well, what I think is there could be this narrative that gets established if Kansas gets knocked out early, which is possible. I don't think it's necessarily likely. And let's say Parker, they let's say they make it all the way to at least the Elite Eight. And let's say Wiggins gets knocked out earlier. And then you go, oh, look at this. Look at how that team's doing. And maybe you get that, the narrative that he's a winner. He kind of gets the Carmelo Anthony positive label from like what Carmelo did at Syracuse. Well, I think Kansas is a very likely to get knocked out before. Because I think without Joel Embiid, they're a very beatable team, which you saw in the Big 12. West VA killed them. They didn't make the tournament. And they lost pretty handily to Iowa State. So I think without Embiid, they're very beatable. And I don't know if comes back at all because he's got a back injury and he's a big man. They're not going to rush him back yeah. to the floor. Well, and he has nothing left to prove in that sense. You know, obviously he'll have his workouts, and he's, I'd be shocked at this point. You know, some people said, oh, that makes him more likely to stay. I think that makes him more likely to go, because if he proves that he can't go, or whatever happens next year, then his stock just gets hit a lot. I mean, but he, McGarry, now he'll right? still get drafted high. Yeah, Mitch McGarry. Yeah. McG- I mean, McGarry. He's pretty much, he's done as a prospect at this point. Yeah, I mean, he, I, I still love him as a talent, but the injuries that he's had are very scary, very scary. Yeah, he's, got, he's already put on some weight. He's not a very skinny guy. He carries on weight in his frame. He's pretty old now for his age. I feel like, yeah, yeah that's the guy who really missed the boat and getting paid. Yeah, and on the MB thing, I actually watched the West Virginia-Kansas game this morning. I had it recorded, and I hadn't watched it yet. And the other big problem with them is that their point guard play oh, is yeah. just rough. No, it's really and- bad. Yeah, and as you said, it's a guard, it's a guard league in a lot of ways. And while they obviously have incredible talent with Wiggins and Embiid, and Selden is, I, I enjoy Selden, and I also am intrigued by Perry Ellis. But when you don't have quality point guard play in the tournament, you can get knocked out in a surprising way. That happens all the time. Yeah, I think because Kansas has no point guards and they have inconsistent outside shooting, and that's a recipe to be upset. So they're trying to think they could lose pretty easily, regardless of how Wiggins plays as a player. Could you see them losing on the first weekend? I'm not, I mean, if they had gotten a different draw, I'm not really big on Mexico or Stanford. But I, I think uh, – I, I don't think – I think those teams are both very beatable. I think – I don't think they'll make the Elite Eight or anything. I think they'll lose to the Sweet 16 probably. And the other one that we haven't talked about in terms of player position versus position is the possible second-round matchup of Tyler Ennis versus Aaron Kraft, which is – if it happens, I think Dayton has a chance to beat Ohio State. They but do. 
Ennis Craft would be just really fun in terms of Ennis's stock, and Craft has the narrative with him and everything. Does Craft have NBA draft stock? Because I would not draft him. No, no chance of that. I think that he's a guy who will get invited to a camp and that he has the energy that I, I could see a coach falling in love with him and making him the last guy on a roster spot, but I don't see him getting drafted unless he goes on one of those crazy runs because the thing about it is the last couple picks in the second round, those teams are basically just taking flyers. Yeah. So I could see that kind of thing, especially if a Midwest team had that spot and just went, hey, you know, let's say, let's say Ohio State beats Syracuse and they make the Elite Eight. And Kraft gets a lot of the benefit of that, though. Lequinton Ross, obviously, is talented as well, and they have other guys, too. I could see going in one of those spots, kind of like Isaiah Thomas did, except that Isaiah Thomas's teams didn't do as well in the tournament. But I could see it like that. But Kraft, I think Kraft is a better international player than he is an NBA player, partially because of the three-point line and partially because there are a lot of bigger guys that can run an offense in Europe than there are in the NBA right now. And so that, could, I think, could benefit him a lot. He just can't shoot, though, and he's like, if he could shoot, it'd be a different story. But, that, I mean, that play he made at the end of the Michigan game, man. <laughs> that was not the yeah, greatest. It wasn't. And with Kraft, he could be a guy, there are always, I think of guys like this, that he could go to Europe for five, six years, and then if he can develop a shot in that time, then he comes back to the NBA in his late 20s and is a rotation player. That's certainly possible, too. Yeah, because, like, point guards are so deep. Because, like, when you say, oh, Kraft can make the end of a roster, I love these guys like Russ Smith. He just picked around draft like a point guard. Or Markel Brown. Those are guys, athletically and skill-wise, just blow that out the water, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with that. And then the, the other factor in all this, and I'm working on a piece that relates to this, is that point guards are aging really well on the aggregate. Obviously, Nash has been falling off now, but Nash is – he's old. You know, that's that's the thing. But – Point guards are aging well, and so what that means is that you're there's more competition because the guys are hanging on, and coaches are so comfortable with the Derek Fishers of the world that it makes it harder for the young guys to get a spot. Yeah, I mean, point guard to me, I think, has been a little overvalued in the NBA just because there are so many good point guards. Every team has a good point guard just about, and if they don't, there's three or four good ones in every draft. Point guards are kind of like running backs in the NFL. You can find them really easily, and the NBA level and college are super important. Yeah, and college is super important, and also most of them don't stay around a super long time So because they're so big for continuity and consistency, but a lot of the best ones are gone really quickly, and we'll have to see how Marcus Smart does because that's another huge story of this tournament. Well, I think they're in trouble. Once uh, their center went down, Michael Cobbins, they were pretty much just grasping at straws, and they got to play Gonzaga with two good big men. They have no one. They play like LeBron at the five lot, I mean six, seven. They just have no size. I think they're in trouble percent that knockout well and i don't see much of a chance of them beating arizona because oh, arizona is no. so good i mean and they have so much so much athleticism and size and everything i think that like tarzuski would just maul oklahoma state yeah and they're playing out west i think they're i think of all the uh, teams they got the easiest path to the final four playing out west is the one seed it'll be hard to beat arizona they travel really well it'll be hard to beat them yeah, and they get a benefit that it's not like they're playing San Diego State in San Diego or anything like that. They're not going to have any of those big geographical things, though there is an interesting subplot with that, that as somebody who attends a lot of NCAA tournament games or did when I was in college, the second round is really interesting because a lot of times you have fans in the arena that are on different sides of the bracket, 
but that have a rooting interest. So UCLA and Arizona are playing in the same arena, and people will have tickets to both of those games, assuming both teams win. And while generally you root for your conference, neither of those schools institutionally like each other. So we could see a Gonzaga-Oklahoma State team have the equivalent of a home court advantage over Arizona in the second round. What that always happens with the upsets is the other teams always turn against the higher-ranked team, all the fans. So, like, if you got a 15 or a 14 making a run, they got the crowd behind them usually. And everybody else is like, yeah, let's see what happens. Yeah, that happens a lot. And I remember one of the ones that it happened for when I was there was actually Marquette when Steve Novak was there. I think Creighton might have had one of those, too, when I was there years and years ago. And then that's the other factor in terms of especially the third and fourth round, so the Elite Eight and the Sweet 16 round, is with Duke. Because basically everybody roots against Duke who isn't a Duke fan. Yeah, that's pretty That's pretty accurate, yeah. But they're playing in Raleigh in the first round, so they're going to have a huge presence. And they also have the benefit, and this is another thing that's happened in previous years, is that when they're playing in the same arena as North Carolina, the North Carolina fans turn on Duke hard, but they're not playing in the same one because UNC is a six. Yeah. You know, it's too bad. So, I, I like Mercer a lot as an upset team, but I don't think they'll be able to beat Duke. But I thought Mercer yeah. in the right situation could have made a run. There are a lot of them like that, where teams that I would have been very intrigued by, and I think it's the same thing for me with UCLA, that if they had had a different one, like if they had been with Wichita State, I could have been intrigued by them, but Florida's really good. I mean, but you saw Florida, though. They almost lost Tennessee and Kentucky. I think with Florida, you keep them in the half court, control the ball, make them beat you in perimeter, and they don't have a lot of post play. They make you beat you one-on-one off the dribble, and just really will look good. The main thing with them is they play with good defense. They turn it really fast and get defense to offense. But you keep them on the half court, you make them shoot the ball from deep, you have a chance mm-hmm. to beat them. You mentioned Tennessee. Tennessee is another team that I really like. I think that they could have, if they can pull out the, the first four matchup against Iowa, I could see them beating UMass. Yeah, I think UMass is a team I like. I, I like Tennessee and UMass. I think the winner of that game could do the real game in the second round. That's also with the other, um, the other playing game. I like both those teams, too. That would be a really fun game. I don't know if it's a gap by the time we do this broadcast, but NC State, Xavier, Samaj, Kristen, TJ Warren, both of those guys could take over against St. Louis and beat that team. And both those guys could be first-round picks, too, which is always interesting in a first-four game. Yeah, I think Warren, for sure, that gives gone be a first-round pick. Kristen, I'd probably have to make a run in the tournament. He's really good, too. Yeah. I'm a big fan of him athletically. I think that he, he reminds me a little bit of Rondo in the sense that he's like, he has this kind of athletic ability for and, and he has good size for the position. And like Rondo, he needs a better jump shot. But I like him as, as a kind of a rotation level guard in the league. And you always need guys like that, even though, as we talked about, the pool is getting deeper all the time. Yeah, he's probably a combo guard off the bench, unless he gets a better yeah. jump shot, as you were saying. Do you have a Final Four yet in mind? Of, you, yeah. I know you mentioned some teams. Are you thinking about it? Yeah, I think I'm pretty much – I'm going to go, I think, uh, Arizona. I'm going to go Louisville, Michigan State. And I'm going to take your boys. I'm going to ride underdog. I'm going to take you two out of the Final Four. Well, I hope you're right, because that would be a lot of fun. Thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, man, have a good one. Thanks again to Jonathan for taking the time. You can read his work on realgm.com. He has pieces up on the tournament, and he also writes on many other basketball things. Great writer. You should give him a read. You can also follow him on Twitter at Jonathan Sharks. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-T-J-A-R-K-S. Next up is a little bit of a change of pace. My sister is a biologist by training, and she actively hates sports, but she also actively loves the idea of mascot battles. And so for... About the last 10 years, we've been doing an actual mascot bracket, and I put it on ESPN and all of that. And 
some years it does really well, some years it doesn't. Uh, I think the best year that it did was about 70th, 75th percentile on ESPN, which is actually shockingly good. The only ground rule that I have is that I don't give her obvious matchups, so what I interpret that as is 116s and most 215s, but just about everything else she gets. So it's a lot of fun to do. She takes it very seriously, and I was a little bit surprised by the results this time, but I enjoy doing it quite a bit. Runs about 15 minutes. I'm hoping you'll like it as much as I enjoyed doing it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So the first one is Buffalo against Panther. A Buffalo against a Panther. I would have to say a Panther because it could outrun the Buffalo for sure. Makes sense. Okay, next is Ram versus Lumberjacks. Ooh, um, Ram. Any particular reason? Yeah, I would say Ram because Lumberjacks can't move that quickly, and most likely the weapon of a Lumberjack would be to climb up a tree, and the Ram could just ram down the tree. I think you'll know one of these teams. Bruin versus Golden Hurricane. Is the Hurricane made of gold or the color gold? Let's say the color gold because how it was originally determined is that they were going to be the Hurricanes, but the guy who thought of it liked that their uniforms were already gold, so he called them the Golden Hurricanes. So it's a Golden Hurricane and a Golden Bear. Well, no, a Bruin, so a baby bear, not a Golden Bear. I'm going to go for Golden Hurricane. Sorry, Bear. Okay, it's all right. One of your favorites, Buckeye versus Flyers. And then, wow. and then the Buckeye, the Buckeye is like a nut, right? Yeah, or the tree that holds the nut. Oh, well, in that case, you know, if a plane hit a tree, I'm going to go Buckeye because it seems more sturdy. Okay, orange meaning the color versus a Bronco. Oh, mm. so thought process would be that Usually when you have me do a color versus something, I think if that thing could just be blinded by the color and not be able to fight back. And a Bronco seeing orange would just make it angry and unable to do anything, so I'm going to say orange. Okay. Lobo, which is a wolf, versus Cardinal, which is the color red. Not the bird? Not the bird. They'll come up later. So a wolf versus the color red. In this case, I think the wolf would have enough sense to just not fight the red. So I'm going to go wolf. Lobo. Okay, this one's fun. A tiger versus a colonial. Like a colonial Quaker? Yeah, let, let's say, yeah, somebody who is, yeah, that, that works. Oh, man. Huh. They would have been so scared to see a tiger. What did you say, tiger? Tiger versus colonial. Okay. So Tiger walked into the village of Colonials. I feel like they don't stand a chance, so Tiger for sure. Okay, another color one. I forgot there were three color teams this year. A Bearcat versus Crimson, meaning the color red. What is a Bearcat? I'm imagining yeah. a bear with the face of a cat. Oh, I found a picture. It is kind of a bear with the face of a cat. Yeah, it pretty much is. Yeah, that thing looks pretty helpless. I'm going to go Crimson. Spartan versus Blue Hen. <laughs> Spartan. Tar Heel versus Friar. And so what we've talked about before, Tar Heel, as I understand it, is somebody who fought in, I believe it's the Civil War, and a Friar is a Friar. Meaning, you know, like Friar John, not like a deep Friar. 
that's unfortunate because I probably would have gone for the deep fryer. Okay, I'm going to go Tar Heel. Cyclone versus Eagle. <laughs> oh, gosh. I don't want to imagine an eagle getting torn up by a cyclone, but I don't really see any other way around it, so cyclone. Okay, another flying animal one. Husky versus hawk. Hmm. So I don't really think that a hawk would be able to do much to a husky before it got too tired, but the husky could just grab it. So I would say husky. That's the end of that first round. Bulldog versus cowboy. Cowboy, come on. Okay, this one I'm going to have to look up, but it's a sooner versus a bison. Use whichever one you're more comfortable with. I think the wagon is closer rep- representative, but... Yeah. Okay, so it's a wagon versus a bison? Sure. Yeah, I'm going to go bison because a wagon is pretty different. Aztec versus Aggie. I don't <laughs> think it really matters which definition of Aggie we're using. What are the two definitions? I, I, An agricultural a, student? Agricultural person, but I think there's one that uses some sort of cow, but I'm not sure that it really matters. So an Aztec, just somebody who's in agriculture. Yeah. Um, how did the Aztecs die out? The Spaniards. Oh, yeah. Well, if it was a Spanish Aggie, that would be a different situation. But since it's not, I'm going to go Aztec. How, okay. However, had they died in the famine, I would have gone Aggie. Okay, bear versus corn husker, and we're for corn husker. We're using a person who husks corn. Oh, uh, bear for sure. Okay, duck versus cougar. <laughs> oh, poor duck. Yeah, cougar. Cougar. Although I think I'd have a hard time in the water. Where this is one you're probably going to need to look up. It's a billikin versus a wolf pack. All right, billikin. It's a charm doll. <laughs> what the F? It looks sort of like an Elfie Buddha. Oh, my goodness. That thing versus a pack of wolves? Wolf pack, yes. I would go with the billigan because I just feel like they wouldn't know what to do with that thing. Can it fly? Is it invisible? It looks I think crazy. It's, I, think it's, I think it's just a, it's just a, a like a doll, a figurine. I mean, I'm going to go figurine because what is a pack of wolves going to do to a figurine either? Fair point. Nothing. Minuteman versus... A Hawkeye, and I'm going to figure out what a Hawkeye is. The Minuteman reminds me of that Missy Elliott song. A Hawkeye is a, we'll use it's a person from Iowa. <laughs> I would say, yeah, uh, Minuteman. Okay, a Longhorn, so you know what a Longhorn is, versus a Sun Devil. Yikes. Uh, sun Devil. Okay. What I'm not giving you, but I know you would enjoy, is a Wolverine versus a Terrier. Oh my god! Wolverine, obviously. <laughs> Okay, Sec- we're on to the second round now. Gator versus panther. Oh, wow. That's so hard. I don't know how long a panther's claws are. Let me think about this. I guess I want to say panther, but I'm not really sure how effective it would be against the gator. I'm going to go gator. I'm going to take a gamble and go gator. Because it okay. only needs one good swipe bite at the panther to really get the job done. Also, it can survive in water, which is an advantage. Right. Um, okay. Ram versus Golden Hurricane. Man, this Golden Hurricane is going to be a challenge for me. I'm going to go Golden Hurricane again. Buckeye versus the color orange. Oh, my gosh. What a non-battle. Buckeye. Okay, a wolf versus a jayhawk. And a jayhawk is a fictional bird. We've talked about it before. Yeah. 
I'll say wolf. Cavalier versus tiger. Ooh. What kind so, of I, I armor caval- does the cavalier have? It has a sword. So cavalier oh. was supporters of King Charles in the English Civil War. So that was 1600. So I don't think we can say they had a gun, but they definitely had a sword. I don't think that a cavalier has much chance against a tiger. So I pick the tiger. Color red versus a Spartan. I would say Spartans have like a pretty big mask over their face, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Spartan, they probably can't see anyway. Okay, Tar Heel. You know what that is versus Cyclone. Uh huh. Mm, Tar Heel. They're feisty. Husky versus Wildcat. Ooh, cat versus dog. I'll say Husky. That surprises me. Okay. Another Wildcat. Wildcat versus Cowboy. Ooh. What's the mascot look like? This is University of Arizona. More cat or more lion? I'd say a pretty fair mix. Hmm. Versus a cowboy? Yeah. I guess, yeah. Wildcat. Okay. Bison versus Aztec. Aztec. Okay, this is a great one. A bear versus a blue jay. (laughs) I feel like the bear could have trouble getting to the blue jay. But the blue jay really couldn't do to the bear. So I'm going to go bear because if it ever got any kind of shot at the blue jay, it would get it. Cougar versus badger. Oh, man. That's a good one. I think the cougar would be pretty beat up, but it would probably win. Hey, we get to do one of the ones we talked about ahead of time. The shocker, which we're interpreting as a bundle of wheat with a sweater, versus wildcat. Wow. Sweatered wheat versus a cat. I'm going to go with the wheat and the sweater, the shocker, because it could suffocate the cat. Okay. Oh, back to your favorite, the billikin versus a cardinal, meaning the bird. Oh, my gosh. Hmm. That thing is terrifying. But well, would it be I'm terrifying gonna... to a bird? No, I don't think the bird that's would what I'm kind of thinking about. So I feel like I would go with the cardinal in this case. Okay, Minuteman versus a Blue Devil. A Blue Devil's a fictional thing? Yeah, we'll say it's devil-esque, but not full Lucifer. (laughs) I'm going to say Blue Devil, because the Minuteman probably couldn't handle that. Okay, Sun Devil versus Wolverine. And the Sun Devil, again, is a fictional devil? Yeah, it uses a trident. So it's a devil with a trident versus a Wolverine? Yes. How do you kill a devil? I don't know, I guess, but I, I feel like I feel like a wolverine would do it. I feel like that too, because it just wouldn't even care and just go at it. So I would say wolverine too. Third round: gator versus golden hurricane. Hmm. Gator. That's exactly I what I would. Get up in the water and duck under the hurricane. Okay, buckeye versus lobo wolf. Lobo. Tiger versus Spartan. Tiger. Tar Heel versus Husky. Mm, what weapons does the Tar Heel have? We'll say they have a Civil War era rifle. I think that's about fair. How menacing is the Husky? Pretty bad? Uh, it's middle of the road. It looks like it's smiling, but it's a little bit of a mean <laughs> smile. It's. Uh, I'm going to say Tar Heel. Wildcat versus Aztec. Wow. That probably really happened. I would think it did. I'll say Aztec. Bear versus Cougar. Ooh, the bear-cougar battle would probably end with the bear on top because 
it has so much more brute force and thicker skin. I feel like it would have a huge advantage. So bear. Wait, what kind of bear is it? I think it's a black bear, black or mm-hmm. brown. I I think it's still the bear. I mean, how cougars are much smaller, aren't they? Yeah, but I mean, if it was a really small bear, it could potentially. It's not a baby bear. Okay. I'll go there. Okay, our good friends, the shocker, against a cardinal, meaning the bird. Oh, bird, because it eats that shit. Does a cardinal eat wheat? I guess it might. I mean, it could peck at it, at least, till it was, like, not there. It could make a house out of it. I can't believe we get this one again, but it's Wolverine against Blue Devil this time. Oh, man. Well, we said Wolverine last time when it was a sun devil. Does the Blue Devil have a weapon? I believe he has a trident. Let me see if I can find it. Well, a lot of devils have tridents. So that thing versus a wolverine? Correct. Wolverine. Okay, we're down to eight teams. Gator versus Lobo. Gator versus Lobo? Oh, my goodness. Gator. I'm sorry. For pretty much the same reason it was going to get the panther. Tiger versus Tar Heel. Tiger. I'm going to run. Aztec (laughs) versus Bear. This is the same, like, black or brown bear. Oh, he looks pretty scary. That's an angry bear. I think that the Aztec is not going to stand a chance, though. Baylor, bear. I think this one's going to be easy. Cardinal meaning the bird versus a wolverine. Ooh, ouch. Not fair for the cardinal. Wolverine. Five, four. Gator versus tiger. Oh, wow, because the tiger is good in water. Mm. I'm going to say tiger. Okay, bear versus wolverine. No, that's happened. (laughs) Yeah, probably. (laughs) Sure, it's happened in Alaska. Any guess on which one wins more often? I'm going to say bear because of its size alone. If wolverines hunted in, like, big packs, I would say maybe, but... That would be another good mascot, pack of wolverines and the doomsday preppers. I'll message that on to teams. Okay, the final, the championship game, tiger versus bear. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) Gosh, the titans. (sighs) Let me look up the tiger. Oh, no, also terrifying. Goodness gracious. Okay, let's think this one through. Tiger versus bear. So they're going to meet in a wooded area, likely. Tiger has a much better stalking ability and long claws. Bear, poorer stalking ability, shorter claws, larger mass, so it could take more hits than the tiger. But the bear's best sense is being able to sense the tiger before it's coming up, and this is the whole premise that they're already fighting. So tiger's going to win. Tiger wins. Memphis Memphis wins the tournament. So So the Tigers are going to win? Tigers. Memphis Tigers, an eight-seater, your pick to win the NCAA championship. A lot of – they're not particularly likely, but you had a lot of high seeds actually do very well. So that's – it's certainly there, – there's a lot of – there's a potential that it actually does pretty well. We'll see. Nice. Okay. Well, thanks for that. It was a lot of fun. Yes, it was. Always is. Let me know how I do. Of course. Take care. Bye. Thanks again to all of my guests, Dan Hanner and Jonathan Sharks of Real GM. You can read them there, and you can also follow them on Twitter, and also my sister. It's great having her on. I love doing the mascot bracket every year, and it's really fun to put it on the podcast. 
for those who are interested in my own predictions, I think that the Final Four is going to be Florida, Michigan State, Louisville, and Arizona, with Florida and Louisville meeting in the national championship game and Florida pulling it out. I think they're a really good team. And as a UCLA alum, I have the battle scars to show that Billy Donovan is a really good coach, and I like the balance of their team. I think they're dangerous. I think they're the most likely champion. I agree with Dan Hanner that there isn't a super likely one this year. I think it's very spread out, which makes me really excited. But I think they have the best chance, which is why I picked them as the champion. I'm incredibly excited for this tournament, and I'm incredibly excited for the next couple weeks of Real GM Radio. As I've mentioned in previous weeks, we're going to start doing the Eliminated Series soon. I already have some great guest suggestions. I really appreciate those. If you have more, because I'm going to do a 10-minute or so interview with somebody who's close with every team, you can send them to me at my email address, which is daniel.larue at realgm.com. You can also hit me up on Twitter at Danny LaRue. That's D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. It's going to be a great tournament. I'm super excited about the balance. I think that there are going to be upsets and good games all over. And also some really fun draft ramifications. I think there are going to be some people that make themselves a lot of money. And I always enjoy those storylines. And I'm hoping that some of the high-profile guys do well, especially McDermott. I think it'd be a nice capstone for his career, but I actually have them losing early to Baylor, so it'll be interesting to see if that happens. But thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the tournament, enjoy the NBA, and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like, breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you love a sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy. Without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. 